the stars look good tonight Thought electric Alice in the pale moonlight Don't the moon look big and bright Thought electric Alice in the pale the Arts Report. We're celebrating the new year with the best interviews of 2011, featuring interviews with Dr. Gabor Mate, fringe artist extraordinaire TJ Daw, uh, the author of a book called Pilgrimage of the Leprechauns, as well as puppeteer Ronnie Burkett, the band The Wizards, and this year's fringe award winners Little Orange Man. So stay with us. Hello, and welcome to the Arts Report, your weekly fix of arts and culture news and interviews here on CITR 101.9 FM and streaming online at citr.ca. My name is Adam Janusz. Today is January the 4th, 2012, and this is our first show of the new year, and we thought we'd celebrate the new year by uh, going reviewing or going backwards to... Uh, some interviews we did in the last uh, year, and um, and yeah, show off our our best interviews and and start the year off uh, fresh. So we've got plenty of great uh, great interviews for you for the next uh, not just hour but hour and a half. So we've got lots of good stuff, including as uh, as I said at the top of the show. Um, renowned doctor uh, Gabor Mate, who's written uh, the book called Realm of Hungry Ghosts. Uh, we interviewed him as well as uh, fringe artist TJ Daw. The two of them collaborated on a fringe fundraiser last uh, February. So we've got two great interviews with them. Also, um, we spoke to a woman who says that she went to Ireland and, uh, and, was friends with uh, leprechauns there. Uh, certainly one of the most um, unusual interviews we did last year, so we'll we'll review that one. And uh, perhaps slightly less strange, uh, we have puppeteer Ronnie Burkett, uh, who recently did a show 
uh, at the Colch here in Vancouver, and it did very well. Um, that's putting it mildly. It was the best-selling production that uh, the Colch has ever put on. So a huge success, and uh, the show was called Penny Plain. So uh, that interview uh, aired just a few weeks ago, but we'll uh, we'll celebrate uh, Ronnie Burkett's success and the Colch's success by re-airing that one. We'll also speak... To Grandmar the Wizard, uh, another curious interview that we did uh, last year, who is a band member of the Wizards, uh, who are a team of, of wizards who play instruments and put on rock shows um, in Vancouver. And finally, at the end, uh, we'll play an episode from a series we did called This Fringy Life. It was a podcast series that we did uh, that was a team team effort with uh, the Vancouver International Fringe Festival. And um, we, uh, in the episode that we'll play for you, we interviewed uh, two artists, Ingrid Hansen and um, Kathleen Greenfield, who made a, sh- a show called Little Orange Man. And that little show ended up winning a lot of awards at the end of the Fringe Festival. So... We'll play that episode of This Fringy Life for you on today's show. Um, So, yeah, it's 2012, and I hope you had a good holiday season and a happy new year. Um, I don't know. I hope it was better than mine. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Uh, A lot of people... I've spoken to, and myself included, had, um, well, I don't want to whine, I don't want to complain and say it was a rough Christmas, but um, it was, let's say, a stressful uh, Christmas uh, Christmas season, and, uh, you know, I've always heard people uh, complain that the holidays are always, you know, so stressful, whether it's shopping for gifts or all the family events or whatever it is. Um, I never really understood that argument, but this year I, I sure did. I sure understood that argument. And, and then, then a lot of people I talked to were, were sick. You know, there's a sort of a Christmas flu going around right now, or now I guess it's a New Year's flu, and it seems to be picking away everybody that I know. It, uh, it took me down a few days before uh, Christmas. No, sorry, on Christmas Day I started getting sick, yeah. And luckily it only went through me in about a day, but uh, a lot of my relatives and a lot of my friends and roommates have um, have, have fallen down with this uh, wretched disease, what I'm calling the Christmas flu. So um, hopefully you're, you're in good shape uh, out there, and, uh, and the worst is over, let's say. Um, the shortest day of the year was the 21st, so think of it this way. The days are getting longer every single day. Let that be your... Um, your little bit of uh, silver lining, if you know, if you if you had a not so great Christmas. If you had a good Christmas, well, then uh, I hate you, and I'm very jealous. Um, no, I'm just kidding. If you had a good Christmas, then uh, all the more power to you, um, because I guess that's what uh, the holidays are supposed to be about: rest and good times, and good food, family, presents, and all that good stuff. But anyway, it's it's all it's all over now, and uh, everyone has to go back to uh, regular life, and we certainly will do that here at the Arts Report. We're uh, getting geared up to cover the Push Festival, which is probably, it's definitely one of the biggest deals in the arts scene in Vancouver because it's a festival that uh, includes different art forms, uh, from theater to dance to you name it, uh, music, uh, cabaret performances, and 
all of it is always extremely innovative and challenging and entertaining and, and just interesting and just basically whatever you go to in that festival, wherever um, the shows have come from, no matter what they are about, you will not be disappointed. Um, it's, it's a pretty safe bet for, for great art in this city. So, so we're very uh, excited because that's coming at the end of the month. But uh, before we get to, to regular work, we wanted to take uh, an hour, or I guess today an hour and a half, to, um, to look back at some of the, the uh, most interesting interviews of 2011. So without further ado, let's get right to it. Um, back in February, renowned Vancouver doctor and writer Gabor Mate collaborated with playwright and performer TJ Daw for a special Fringe Festival fundraiser. On the February 9th Arts Report, I spoke to Dr. Mate about how he ended up in a Fringe Festival play, but we also talked about the topic of education reform, and that's the clip I wanted to play for you. I brought up a lecturer and education reform advocate named Sir Ken Robinson, who goes all over the world talking about how the current system of grade school education is a relic of the 19th century, and one that stifles and punishes originality and creativity in students. And specifically, uh, he singles out the overprescription of ADHD medication to children. So the, um, Gabor Mate has written a book on ADHD, so he was very willing to share his opinion on that. Well, look, look, you're touching up an area that I work with quite a lot. I mean, I just yeah. came back from Edmonton and I spoke to teachers exactly on this subject. Um, ADHD was the subject of my first book, um, having been diagnosed with it myself. Um, statistics show that in Canada, the number of stimulants given out for ADHD has gone up 43% in the last five years. So the, the rates of... Uh, Diagnosis and treatment have gone up exponentially. In the, in, in the States, there are 3 million children on, uh, on uh, stimulant medication for ADHD, mm -hmm. and uh, as well as um, half a million kids who are receiving heavy-duty antipsychotics for the same condition. And these kids are not psychotic. Yeah. They're being uh, tranquilized by them. Right. Now, um, having said that, I also think that the diagnosis fits a lot of kids legitimately, in the sense that their brains are being adversely affected by the stress that's in the culture. In other words, brain development is not separate from the environment, on the contrary. And so that there's a lot more troubled kids around, genuinely troubled kids around, because the parents are more troubled, mm -hmm. and there's less cohesion, less community, less of the uh, non-stressed, attuned environment that children need. So kids' brains are being negatively affected. Okay. The solution that our society provides for that is to medicate these kids, rather than to look at what is it that they need developmentally. Mm. Now... When you say that the schools are date, no, they're not. Mm -hmm. The schools are perfectly in date. It depends what you assume the purpose of the schools are. If the purpose of the schools is to bring up uh, people ready to work and meaningless jobs in a, in a, in a road fashion in a post-industrial post society, the schools are doing a great job. It's just a lot of kids are being thrown by the wayside. Right. And especially exactly. the ones that are being thrown by the wayside are the most sensitive kids. Because mm -hmm. it's sensitivity that predisposes people to be affected by the environment mm -hmm. so that the most sensitive kids are also the ones most likely to have ADHD. Right. They also happen to be the most creative ones. Right. And of course the schools, because of cutbacks and so on, because of the, uh, because of the uh, emphasis on standardized tests and all that, mm -hmm. which don't respect artistic endeavor, creativity, individuality, mm -hmm. spontaneity, that's got nothing to do with standardized results, mm -hmm. those qualities are not valued and they're not um, 
supported yeah. and the funding for them is always the first thing to go right. whenever the school system is in economic trouble, which mm-hmm. it is these days. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I agree with the, the, the speaker, mm-hmm. uh, whom, Robinson, is it? Yeah. Who you quoted. Uh, I just think it's a bit more complex than that. Sure. In that um, there are genuinely more kids who are diagnosable, but the solution shouldn't be drugs. The solution should be to change their environment in such a way that can support their healthy development. So it's not a disease issue, it's a developmental issue. Right. It's a question of what, what are the conditions required for healthy development. And the schools not only don't provide that, they often provide the very opposite. And this is despite yeah. the best efforts of teachers. But teachers themselves are sort of products of the system. They're products of the system. They're not educated in this stuff. Right. Nothing about human brain development or personality development is ever taught in educational faculties or in medical schools. Hmm. So most of the people that influence the lives of children know nothing about the science. Mm. that has not been uh, clearly elucidated yeah. around brain and child development. So it's a, it's certainly out of date in the sense that it's not in any sense correlated with our scientific advances in terms of understanding human beings. Hmm. And do you think the arts you know, could be a part of that solution? Well, in, in, in my book on ADHD, I say that, written 10 years ago. I mean, necessarily. I mean, if these guys are creative and expressive, that needs to be encouraged and valued and celebrated Mm -hmm. and uh, if you look at music for example uh, human beings anywhere the basic form of expression universally is music Mm -hmm. and uh, if you ask people how important is uh, algebra in their lives most people couldn't even tell you what algebra is (laughs) but ask them about music and deprive them of their music and they're bereft and we are a society that become consumers of music, mm-hmm. but not creators of it anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, so that uh, societies where people make music together, uh, not in order to entertain others, but to be with others. Yeah. Uh, th- those are the societies which still provide kids with the right conditions of development. Mm. We are past that point. Well, only that, uh, that the university, uh, which is supposed to mean one world, mm-hmm. that's what university means, is one world. Okay is one of the worst, worst culprits in separating things and building up barriers rather than breaking them down. The disciplines are separated. People don't see the connections. People are not taught the connections. Uh, they each learn their craft or their intellectual disciplines in mm-hmm. isolation from everything awareness else. from everything else. Uh, research is, uh, is um, minute and uh, concerned with minutiae rather right. than, Too la- narrow la- than larger questions. That's not, what a that's not what a university is supposed to do. It's right. supposed to reflect the one world. And that's doctor and author Gabor Mate um, speaking there for an interview we did on February 9th. And it was all for a, a fundraiser event for the Vancouver International Fringe Festival. So we also, for that event, interviewed uh, TJ Daw. In fact, we interviewed both of them at uh, Dr. Gabor Mate's uh, home. The two of them were in the living room um, by the fireplace, <laughs> no joke, and uh, I interviewed them both um, sort of in, in one go, and uh, it was certainly a very memorable day for me. Um, TJ Daw, he's the he's the partner in crime for this, this fundraiser, um, and he's an artist uh, so renowned for his work in fringe festivals that uh, some actually call him a fringe god. Uh, for his one-man mixtures of comedy, pathos, and just good old-fashioned quality storytelling. 
In my interview with TJ, which aired on the February 16th Arts Report, we talked about his show Lucky Nine, and in particular how the HBO series The Wire helped inspire the show and became a major theme in the play. Here is TJ Daw talking about The Wire. The reason that the show wound up included in my show Mm -hmm. is because it formed a a basis for a bond between my father and I. My father's a retired Catholic school, high school principal. And I mentioned The Wire to him in passing before I'd ever seen it. I just heard that it was a really good show. So I mentioned it to him once. And then a few, a few weeks or months later, I asked him casually if he'd watched it. And he'd not only watched it, but he'd watched the first two seasons and told me that he'd had to forcibly stop himself because he was addicted and he couldn't do anything else. Hmm. Now, what does my father, who, who teaches Catholic school in, in the suburbs, relate to the <laughs> mean streets of Baltimore? You know, this just fascinated me. Mm-hmm. So then I started watching the show. And then this would be a source of conversation between the both of us. And it became a strong way for us to bond and understand each other. Hmm. My father's not the kind of person that likes revealing himself. He doesn't tell you stories about his childhood. He doesn't tell you stories about things he's been through. But he will talk your ear off if he's telling you about his favorite musician. Or in this case, his favorite TV show. Right. And so through that indirect way, you learn. It was a way for me to get to know him Hmm. in a way that I really hadn't before. Okay. Now, uh, similar similar question. How... um how did you get to know The Good Doctor and include him in your show? Two different friends of mine recommended his books at the same time. My podcast series is called Totem Figures, in which I talk about if you had a Mount Rushmore, who would be on it? So I toured that as a one-man show in 2008, and this conversation, I would have, I'd, that subject would come up in conversation many, many times with different friends. So a friend in Victoria said if she had a Mount Rushmore, one of the people on it would be Dr. Gabor Mate, who I'd never heard of at the time. Mm-hmm. A few months later, I found myself living in Vancouver, and another friend who was in the same building that I was subletting a, an apartment in for a few months basically answered the same thing, and she had some of his books. Okay. So I started reading his books, and then I was there living with a friend, and then this became kind of like my father and I with The Wire. This became a subject of, of conversations between her and I. Mm-hmm. So it was a way to flesh out these ideas, and then I found out that my dad had read one of his books. Mm-hmm. And wow. then I started reading his other books and then recommending them to my mother and sister, and they started reading them. And just like The Wire, this became the basis for more conversations. Yeah, a catalyst. About our family, about our childhoods, about the way we view the world, mm-hmm. different things like that. So it was a way for us to come closer together as a family mm-hmm. in a way that we never had before. It had never been the thing that we did as a family to talk about our feelings, to talk mm-hmm. about our experience, to talk about the dark things mm-hmm. that have happened mm-hmm. in our lives that it still exists in our consciousnesses. And this was starting to happen. Mm-hmm. So I reread the books mm-hmm. and I took notes. And the ideas really led to some strong changes in my relationships with my family. And that just felt worth writing about. Wow. Okay. And then um, uh, just quickly tell us how, um, how it happened that he saw the show and that, that you ended up now in a sort of collaboration. What happened was I started writing for a blog called Beams and Struts. I co-founded this blog in this past April. And the gist of that blog is to look at the world through the lens of integral philosophy. Mm-hmm. Now, what integral philosophy is, is the brainchild of a number of different thinkers, one of whom is Ken Wilber, who's a, a living philosopher. He lives in Denver. He's a Midwesterner. He's six foot four. He's built like Superman. He tells corny jokes, and he's incredibly smart. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he talks about a lot is this map that he's come up with that fits every belief system into it. They're not equal, but they all have an essential piece of the puzzle. Oh, okay. What human development is like, what individuals develop, like how cultures develop Mm -hmm. and one of the things that he does is he looks at the world from four different specific angles what are four different ways you can look at the world one is interior 
like subjective, like your thoughts and feelings. Another mm. is interior objective, like your dopamine, your blood levels, your chromosomes. Okay. One is your culture. So that's the intangible nature of the public. Mm. And the other is social systems. So things like laws and structures. Mm. Mm. Each of these is an essential component of reality. You can look at anything from those four directions. You can look at a meal. You can look at the war on drugs, for instance. Okay. And reading in the realm of hungry ghosts by Gabor Mate, I was very impressed how he looked at the issue of addiction from all four of those angles. He looked oh, okay. at what are people's personal experiences that mm-hmm. makes them addicted to any given thing, heroin or shopping or sex or the internet. Mm-hmm. What's happening inside them physically? What's happening with their dopamine levels, with their endorphins, right. with their brain development? Mm-hmm. What's our culture? How does our culture regard certain things that make or discourage someone from being addicted to them? And mm-hmm. then what are our social systems? What are the laws that exacerbate the problems of addicts that make them even worse? You know, right. If you take someone who's chemically addicted to something and you stress them out by persecuting them or throwing them in prison, that's not going to cure the emotional needs that started the addiction in the first place. That's going to make them far worse. Mm -hmm. So I wrote an article looking at his book through the lens of integral philosophy and sent him a link to it. Uh And he wrote back saying, thank you very much. I've never read Ken Wilber, but I like this article. And then about a month later, I wrote saying, I'm working on this show Mm -hmm. that uses some of the ideas from your book. I don't quote them directly, but Mm -hmm. I just... You know, wanted to send it to you in case there's any legal trouble. Or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. He wrote back saying, don't worry, I won't sue you. I'm too busy answering emails. <laughs> so I sent him the script. And then he wrote back very positively. Mm-hmm. So that was in April. Then I toured the show across Canada and then brought it back to the Vancouver Fringe in September. Mm-hmm. And by then he'd heard from family friends in Victoria who'd seen it there mm-hmm. that it was really good. Mm-hmm. So on like an hour before my opening show in Vancouver, I sent him a sheepish email saying, I don't know if you remember me, but I sent you an email in April and blah, 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 blah. And what I didn't realize was he'd already bought advanced tickets for uh-huh. him and his family. So after the show, I always stay on stage and say hello to people and sell scripts and take it names for my mailing list. And suddenly he was there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I couldn't believe it. Yeah. I would have been terrified and intimidated if I'd known because I, I described his life in the show. I described what each of his books is about. I described reading them. I described... So if you had known, that would have freaked you out in the performance, you think? <laughs> yeah, I still could have done it, but sure, yeah, it, been... it was better not to know. <laughs> yeah, I guess. So then about a week after that, he suggested joining me on stage for a post-show Q&A because theater is a really good way for people to interact. It's a good way to get Mm -hmm. ideas out there Mm -hmm. because the disadvantage of a TV show, even as good as The Wire, is that you watch it pretty much in isolation. I mean, you can get your friends together, but generally that's how it's watched, or a movie. But with theater, you have a bunch of people that are there at the same place at the same time, and Mm -hmm. you have the performers, or in my case, the performer, there as well. And this can be a way to generate discussion. Mm-hmm. The so, same way like the Mount Rushmore idea is sort of catalyst or the wire is a catalyst, theater yeah. is a catalyst for it ideas. It can be. It often isn't. You know, mm-hmm. theater often aims just to be entertainment, just like movies. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that. But it also has the potential to engage the audience immediately and directly. Hmm. So this is combined with the fact that the Vancouver Fringe Festival, which is a wonderful festival and a great part of the theater life in Vancouver, mm-hmm. is severely underfunded thanks to the cuts of the arts by the liberal government. Mm-hmm. So this is also an opportunity to raise funds for them. And to tap into some of that potential of what theater can be in terms of people are going to be there with one of the people I talk about in the show and be able to ask questions. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole audience of people can generate discussion on these ideas and maybe actually do something. Okay. Now, we don't have a lot of time, but uh, I wanted to get your, your um, response to the idea that you are a fringe god. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've toured longer and more than a lot of people. In all my years of touring the Fringe, my first tour was in 1994, mm-hmm. and I've done about 85, maybe 86 or 87 Fringe festivals since. I've performed maybe 800, 900 times. I've, been, I've done my own shows. I've directed and co-written and acted in other shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people that I see that tour the Fringe last a year or two, maybe three or four. I've been doing this for over a dozen. 
Mm-hmm. It's far more than most people do. So you've seen it uh, from all angles, and I'm, I'm sure you have a, a lot of insights. If you had one thing to say to a, an as- aspiring fringe maker um, about, I don't know, I guess the, the a key to to a good fringe play, what, what what is it? What is the one? If you could, if you, is it even possible to boil it down to one thing? If I had to only restrict myself yeah. to one thing, I would say quality is everything. A lot okay. of people with the fringe will go with a gimmick, which can work, but it only works in the short term. Because mm. the they year, think it's the fringe and it's got to be wild and out there. Yeah, and often it is. You know, mm-hmm. and a lot of fringe shows involve sex in the title or nudity on the poster, or there'll be a catchy concept that's encapsulated in the title of the show. A okay. great example of which is a show I directed called the One Man Star Wars Trilogy. Right. If you've got a title, that's, that that tells you everything you need to know about right. the show. It tells you what the content is, tells you what the tone is. But the audience remembers Star Wars. They don't remember Charlie Ross, who's the performer, necessarily. Mm-hmm. So when he comes back with a show that's unrelated to that, they might not remember that. Mm, okay. Whereas if you've built a following over years, just because you've done the best work you can do, whether it's something catchy or something involving uh, an edgy subject or not, you slowly build a following and you keep building on that. And if you keep challenging yourself and keep trying to top yourself and keep presenting the audience with the highest quality product you can so that they leave in a way that makes that they're still thinking about the show right. and that they remember you the next year and think whatever this person has to say, I'm interested in seeing it. Then that's what's going to build a long career. Right. Because ultimately you have to be in this kind of thing for the long haul. Theater right. doesn't offer the kind of instant fame that television... Right. You're not going to have a blockbuster that's going to make a, a billion dollars James Cameron style in, in the fringe circuit. That's right. <laughs> but at the same time, a long, slow apprenticeship can really teach you a lot mm. and give you a lot of chops and give you a lot of tools to come back and keep doing good, solid work. And even if you get into it from the start for the wrong reasons, like I did, you know, like many people who go into theater because they want to be famous, because they want to be rich, okay. you can stumble onto the right reasons along the way, which is you want to do it because you want to express your soul, because there's things that need to be said and that are better off being said and being released to the world. And it is a wonderful transcendent thing to bring an audience to that point of catharsis mm-hmm. and have them taken out of themselves and mm-hmm. open their minds in a way that's never happened before. That is worth doing. That's worth starving for. Hmm. That's worth devoting years and tours to. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. You're welcome. And that's uh, artist and fringe performer veteran uh, T.J. Daw speaking about his show Lucky Nine back in February of last year on the here on the Arts Report. So we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll play an unusual interview um, uh, about a a book called Pilgrimage of the leprechauns so stay with us listen if they're so hot how come they're not tearing up the charts babe because you never play them babe at CITR our hosts choose the music they play that means our charts actually reflect the tastes of music lovers as opposed to focus groups so if you want to know what's really tearing up the charts get your hands on a copy of Beatroot or Discorder magazine or go online to citr.ca CITR's charts are based on actual spins motivated by actual preference. No payola, no marketing, just good tunes. Refreshing, no? Last March, in honor of St. Patrick's Day, we did an interview on the show for a book called Pilgrimage of the Leprechauns. It's actually a sequel to a book that Tannis Helliwell wrote about her travels in Ireland, and in particular... Uh, and a particular episode where she shared a house with, yes, leprechauns. In the follow-up book, she returns to Ireland, and her pint-sized supernatural friends uh, share wisdoms with her, and then in turn she shares with us in her book um, 
those wisdoms. Here is Tannis Halliwell in her own words. It's a true story that I went to Ireland and rented a cottage sight on scene on the far west coast of Ireland called Ackle Island. And it turned out the cottage was haunted by leprechauns. And it wasn't just me seeing this or saying this. The whole village had stories about what had been happening at that cottage Mm -hmm. and the whole lane on which the cottage uh, was located. Mm -hmm. And then... So how did you go from meeting these uh, these leprechauns to now um, this latest uh, chapter, I guess, where you've uh, led tours? Well, um, after living with those leprechauns for the summer, um, they told me that they wanted me to write a book okay. about it, which I did 10 years later. And that book's become quite well known, uh, and it's been printed in about eight different countries. And so... People who had read the book wanted to have an experience meeting leprechauns themselves. So I took a group of 30 people to Ireland for a pilgrimage, and my leprechaun friend hijacked the pilgrimage and took us on a very topsy-turvy experience, which we will never forget. And why do you think, uh, why do you think he did that? I think he did that because humans are very attached to having things safe and predictable and their own way. Mm. And he wanted to wake people up so that they wouldn't just be on autopilot and to give up their attachments to having things like that. Mm. And um, uh, that's one of the ways that we try to become more conscious in Anyway, if you even look at various religions, they'll say you've got to wake up from your your dreaming about having things your own way. Mm-hmm. And so, is this what the book focuses on? Is sort of the the lessons of the pilgrimage, and also just just what happened on that? Yeah, mm-hmm. very much. It's, in Ireland, um, they call it the crack. Learning about the crack, and the crack really means to have a good time. Mm-hmm. But when the Irish are talking about having a good time, they love to laugh. They have black humor, and they laugh at difficulties, and they laugh when things go wrong. And so it's, it's a, I think it's a very funny book, mm-hmm. but only if you enjoy Irish black humor and are prepared to laugh at yourself. Mm. Now, I've heard, I've, I've, I uh, have Irish roommates, so I, I'm familiar at least with the term, the crack, and, uh, you know, they'll often say, what's the crack? As in, you know, how are you, what's up, what's going on? But, um, but I'm guessing you suggest that, that the crack has a much more deeper element, a much more spiritual element, um, sort of connected to, to the soul of Ireland, really. I, I think so. Um, uh, the crack is... Uh, I, I, I think of the crack as being both what we can talk about and what we can't talk about. Mm-hmm. And things that we... I, I remember when in uh, Shakespeare's Hamlet, he said to Horatio, there's more things dreamt of in heaven and hell than are dreamt of in your uh, philosophy. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a very important thing about... We know that things exist that we can't see, and yet we want to construct our reality only on the knowns. Mm-hmm. 
Now, I just want to go back to, to leprechauns in in that... Do they look like what we think they look like in, in popular um, culture? Very much. Um, all, um, all cultures have some version of little people or nature spirits. And um, leprechauns come in all sizes. My leprechaun friend is really quite tall. He, he looks like a miniature uh, W.C. Fields, and he cut, he's about four feet tall. But most leprechauns are quite a bit shorter than that. Mm-hmm. But we have um, other elementals, nature spirits, that are trolls in Norway, or you will have in, in the Maori of New Zealand call them the children of the mist, and they're more like elves. Mm-hmm. So you can find them all over the world. British talk about brownies and pixies. And what, uh, what role do they, do they play, or I, guess, or I guess what do they have to teach us? Well, humans' gift is that we are here to learn love. And we also have free will to make choices. And nature spirits, or what I choose to call them, elementals, their gift is joy and laughter and being spontaneous in the moment. And so that is what they have to teach us, is this kind of joy and laughter and childlike um, view of the world. And, and what we have to teach them is love. And that's Tannis Helluwell, author of Pilgrimage of the Leprechauns. Uh, certainly the strangest interview I've probably ever done on the Arts Report. Uh, all right, we're going to take another break, and when we return, we will speak to... Sorry, we'll have three more interviews for you, including Ronnie Burkett, the um, famous puppeteer, as well as the local band The Wizards, and... Um, Artist from last year's Fringe production, Little Orange Man. So stay with us. The alphabet has only 26 letters. With these 26 magic symbols, however, millions of words are written every day. Pick up your winter issue of Discorder, as the Jan Semper issue is packed with goodies that will warm even the coldest of cockles. Take a dip with Dixie's Death Pool, a spacey art rock collective, or read up on local outsider pop music makers, World Club. Cozy up on the couch with Filmstripped, featuring a review of Color Me Obsessed, a documentary on the replacements. And in case you missed the memo, 2012 is almost here. Check out the Discorder album picks of 2011. Don't forget to pick up your special Jansember issue of Discorder. And we're back on the Arts Report here on CITR 101.9 FM and streaming online at citr.ca. Puppeteer Ronnie Burkett has spellbound audiences with his marionettes for over 20 years. His recent cult performance of Penny Plain ended up the most successful production ever for the cult. It featured over a dozen characters, including the eponymous Penny Plain, an old woman coming to terms with the end of the world. I spoke to Ronnie Burkett for the November 30th Arts Report, and we talked about the apocalypse as a major theme in the zeitgeist today, as we creep ever closer to December the 21st. As well, uh, we talk about what it's like to work with a group of actors who are, in fact, bits of wood on string. 
Yeah, it's kind of an um, end-of-the-world apocalyptic drawing room comedy. There, how weird is that sound? <laughs> a little bit weird. Basically, at the top of the show, we hear uh, news announcements about, you know, all sorts of uh, chaos in the outside world. Um, end of oil, pandemic has struck, uh, extreme weather. And so at the very top of the show, we, we know where we're sitting. And essentially, it's the last three days of civilization. But it's set in a rooming house run by a blind woman. Mm-hmm. And uh, her companion dog, Jeffrey, decides he wants to go live as a man, so he leaves. And uh, she's momentarily alone and interviews other dogs and finally chooses a human girl who's passing herself off as a dog. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I want to ask you about this this theme of the apocalypse, because it's certainly been sort of in the zeitgeist, I guess, ever since the, the turn of the millennium. But uh, certainly with 2012, uh, it, it's sort of back in the news. I just want to know, where did you get the inspiration for this? Well, you know, a lot of my um, a lot of my global thinking comes from mm-hmm. reading far too much David Suzuki, so I blame him. <laughs> but uh, beyond that, you know, I've just been um, increasingly aware, like most people, of two things: one, the fragility of the planet. You know, there's seven billion of us now wanting a lot of stuff off of this planet. Uh, so that's been in my mind. Um, and also, you know, 24-hour news keeps us pretty jacked up these days. Um, you know, with with nonstop stories about disaster, disaster, disaster. So I, I just kind of bought into that sort of thinking and thought, well, the world actually would do quite well without us. So it's not an end of the world piece. It's right. an end of civilization piece. And so uh, my premise is as soon as mankind gets out of the way, the planet will, you know, regenerate itself and do quite well. Right, start to heal. Yeah. I see. And, okay, and then let me ask you this. You've been doing this for 40 years, is that right? I've, I've been uh, jiggling for money for 40 years, <laughs> yeah, and uh, Theatre of Marionettes is on its 25th anniversary tour right now. Yeah. And when you started, uh, as far as I know, there, were, there weren't things like The Muppet Show or um, Sesame well, Street. Well, Muppets were just uh, okay. starting, you know, when I was a kid, because they were on Ed Sullivan and all that, and of course had been around before me. But um, right when I, you know, was about 19 years old, I think, The Muppet Show hit, mm-hmm. and, and so the great Muppet boom began, and, and, and puppetry took on a whole new sort of public awareness, in a way. And did you take inspiration from that, or, or what, you know, what was inspiration for you to, to get into this field? My inspirations were a lot of old puppeteers, yeah. you know, guys who did marionettes, and, and, and the downside of the Muppet thing, or maybe it was an upshot for mm-hmm. me, is that suddenly puppetry all looked like that. It was all mm-hmm. soft and fleecy and television puppetry, which, you know, is amazing work, but suddenly, you know, doing marionettes for live audiences was considered very old-fashioned, and uh, so old-fashioned that it seemingly was new. So when I started, there weren't many people, if any, doing adult work, you know, and certainly not with marionettes. So I completely took inspiration from the Muppets by thinking, well, I don't want to do that, and I don't want to be um, sort of saccharine and, and family entertainment, and I yeah. don't really want to work on television. So it kind of allowed me to just veer off on my own track. Now, uh, I want to ask you about the sort of atmosphere of this kind of work, because whenever I see 
um, puppets or marionettes on the stage that I can't help but there's a certain sort of eeriness to them <laughs> from yeah. an audience perspective because you know they're very lifelike and they're and they're more sort of real than say a cartoon and and so I just wonder what's uh, what do you think is the, the sort of greatest asset or what can you you know do to an audience using the, these kind of things well because those characters that are created don't exist in the real world you know mm. if we go to the theater and we see a, a beloved actor or actress in a role I know that I certainly always take a fair amount of time thinking, oh, I love her, and I loved her in that last thing I saw, <laughs> and, and oh, now she's playing this Scottish lady, you know, so there's always a moment where you have to go, oh, okay, that's that's what I'm watching, whereas, you know, with a puppet, it's essentially an empty vessel. It, right. it exists only to be that character and, and honor the script in that way, so it really is, and now this sounds all woody doody but it really is the audience and the performer filling that iconic right. little thing and and bringing our own frames of reference to it and then it sort of becomes alive in a weird way even though it's not it's complete artifice but it exists only to be that character which i think is for some people magical hmm. well we love looty duty things on this show. <laughs> <laughs> certainly on the west coast huh? <laughs> <laughs> yes even more so you know we we have a certain green substance that uh, encourages us <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah for sure and um in terms of uh, the kind of uh, palette, let's say, of the, the, the subject matter, um, I'm, I'm just wondering what, what kind of themes do you like to, to work with or, or, or what do you like to, what, what can you do? Because, uh, again, you say, you, you know, you don't necessarily do Sesame sort of family-oriented stuff. Is it, is it really um, anything and everything that you can deal with? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. I mean, most, most puppeteers, um, you know, certainly when they're doing adult work now, tend to veer off into fantasy or really blue material. So, as it's called in showbiz still, mm -hmm. you know. Um, uh, I, you know, I'm not that guy who makes gargoyles and, and, and fantasy creatures. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I'm more fascinated by my species, right? So right. what I've always done is I've used puppetry as a vehicle to shrink us. Right. and examine us in miniature. So uh, a lot of the puppet books I grew up with when I was a kid said, never make little people. Well, screw it, I do. <laughs> I make little people. Yeah, screw that rule. Because I, I think it's a great way to examine the species. You right. Know? Um, and, and like I said before, because they're not human in a way for many people, that allows them to approach without thinking, oh, that's me. Right, almost paradoxi paradoxically, um, you can almost see more humanity, right? Because you're not distracted by, as you say, you know, oh, I've seen this actor before, and aren't they great, all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. And uh, I just want to ask you as a final note about your, your, your actors, your, your cast. I understand that there are costume changes and things, so it made me wonder, um, what are they like to work with? Are they easier than humans? Um, I, I like being alone up there, but, you know... <laughs> Here's, here's the road to Weirdville. You know, I never really feel alone. Sometimes, <laughs> you know, I feel like I'm in the middle of a conversation, so I just need to get out of the way so these voices coming out of my mouth can have a true conversation. Really? And, and do you find that there's a, still a two-way street with these, these inanimate objects? Absolutely. But, you know, that's why I like going to work every night, because some nights it really is magical. Some nights, and I'm will never figure out that thing of how a couple hundred strangers can come together in the dark and, and without discussion agree to be a terrific audience. Right. And, and when they do agree silently to be a terrific audience and, and I'm in the zone, then, you know, it really is, 
it's the reason I show up for work. It's magical. And other nights, they just come and cough all over me. So, <laughs> and then it's a night at work, and you still have to tell the t- same story with the same emotional impact. But um, the audience, I, I don't think they realize how important they are to any live experience. And that was Ronnie Burkett. His show, Penny Plain, just wrapped up a few weeks ago at uh, The Cult, and uh, it was The Cult's um, most successful uh, production to date. Um, All right. Now, another interview that we did at the beginning of the year uh, featured Grandmar the Wizard, a.k.a. Bryce Dundon, about his band, The Wizards. It was certainly one of the highlights of the year for me as an interview, and if you haven't heard it, you'll very soon know why. Here it is. Local band The Wizards delight audiences by performing in full wizard regalia, complete with beards, robes, and a dragon. They're bringing their fantastical musical experience to the Forum Sports Bar on Granville Street tomorrow night as part of 30 Live, the local music showcase. I spoke to Grandmar The Wizard about the band, their influences, and their arch-nemesis, Donnie Osmond. All right, so um, I'm, I'm speaking to uh, Grandmar from uh, The Wizards. Uh, hello, Grandmar. Hello there, mortal. <laughs> so um, I understand that um, your band came together uh, because there was a, a need. There was a, there was a severe lack of wizards in the music scene. And I wonder if you could elaborate on, on um, the consequences of this, this uh, wizard shortage. Well, we realize there's quite a limited amount of fantasy in the electronica world, and it was our duty sent here by Merlin to cast our spells upon the crowds through our musical enticement. Yes, and, and is it true then that you do cast spells through your music, I mean, you, you, which I w- would like to describe as a whimsical electronica, if I may? Um, do you, um, are there uh, spells sort of uh, embedded in your, in your music? Oh, yes, of course. It's quite complex. Uh, you simple mortals probably wouldn't understand, but uh, it involves you dancing and us playing music. Is it, wow. It seems extraordinarily simple, and yet you say that it's, it's very complex. Too complex for a mortal like me to understand? There's, there's many layers. It's, quite, <laughs> it's a long story, really. There's a dragon involved and all sorts of unicorns. It's... <laughs> okay. Um, I wonder uh, who is your greatest nemesis? Uh, what is the greatest nemesis of the wizards? We have many enemies during our journeys here in the mortal world. Um, the greatest being Donny Osmond. Uh, <laughs> he is the most, well, he's the greatest Wiccan in all the West. Wow, I had, I had no idea that he was a, a force of, of evil. Oh, yes, yes. Wow, I'm stunned. And um, what, are, what are the influences for, uh, for the wizards? Well, mostly fairies, dragons, uh, dragon brew. Uh, mead, uh, well, some Viking lore, uh, and uh, generally electronica dance, disco rock. Wow. As well. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm just wondering what uh, what do you do, do you sing, or is it mostly uh, non-verbal? If I can say that. Well, we focus mainly on instrumentation, but also we have a vocoder, as you mortals would call it, and. Uh, it allows you to speak in normal tongue and have it sing upon the crowd in a keyboard style. Wow. How many tongues do you speak, Grandma? Um, 
pretty much all of them. <laughs> all of them? All of the tongues in the world? Oh, yes. Yes, it's, um, I mean, not right now. I have a cold, but uh, on a good day. Excellent. And um, now you've been known to um, appear in, um, in, in concert um, in full wizard regalia. Should we expect that at tomorrow's uh, 30 Live show? Oh, of course. That is our ceremonial garb. It's uh, required for us to uh, cast our spells. We have many lights, and those are our uh, charms that are being activated as we play. And should anyone be worried for their safety? Um, perhaps a little, but, um, you know, that's as usual in our wizard shows. There is a dragon, I will warn you. Oh, no. Uh, yes, it's, it's, it's large. Uh, it scares many people, but uh, it's generally quite nice unless it's been drinking heavily. Now, I understand that uh, there is a new uh, wizard joining your band. Is that true? Yes, this is true. His, his name is Segath Genesis. He is <laughs> from the nether realm. And uh, he will be joining us on a variety of instruments. Essentially, we have rewritten majority of our music. Oh, really? Yes, we've added uh, more layers of percussion, um, more guitars, more bass, more awesome. It's, it's pretty good. Excellent. Is there anything else you wanted to, to mention? Um, we shall be recording a, another record soon that is in the works, and that is where all our magic is going to be cast in the next few months, I believe. So that is a very exciting time for us. And that's Grandmar the Wizard there speaking on behalf of the local band The Wizards. So, uh, we've got one more interview for you, and this one is from something that we did in September that I'm quite proud of, and it's a podcast series for the Vancouver International Fringe Festival called This Fringy Life. It was six episodes, each one on a different theme, such as religion or surrender, and we talked to fringe artists about their shows and about their experiences. The last episode was an interview with two artists who did a play called Little Orange Man, which ended up getting a slew of awards at the end of this year's festival. So after the award show, I went backstage with Ingrid Hansen and Kathleen Greenfield, and we talked about their epic journey with Little Orange Man. Here's episode six of This Fringy Life. Going into the Vancouver Fringe Awards night, the play Little Orange Men had a lot of buzz from critics and audiences alike. But who could have predicted performer Ingrid Hansen and director Kathleen Greenfield, both UVic grads, would claim three of the eight awards given out, including Volunteer Pick, the Vancouver Playhouse Award, and one of the six Pick of the Fringe selections. I'm Adam Yanush for This Fringy Life, and in this episode, we talk to Ingrid and Kathleen from Snafu Dance Theatre about Little Orange Men. So we're very excited, um, and the winner of this award will be uh, offered a run in, uh, in, the, in a future Playhouse season. Um, so, the winner of the award is Little Orange Men! Um, I'm Kathleen, I'm the silent director, and I don't have much to say because I'm relatively shy, so... Um, but on behalf of Ingrid and myself, I thank you everybody for coming to see the show. Okay, so this is the Volunteer Choice Award. Um, other than the fact that we have alcohol, there's really nothing to tell you. Yeah. Uh, and the award goes to... Oh my god, the right bikes! Little Orange Man! Come collect your liquor. 
I'm so feeling so shy, but uh, thanks everybody. You guys are really. I ran here. Uh, you won the uh, critics' pick, right? Awesome, fantastic, I caught up with the artists backstage at Performance Works just after the award show wrapped up. Kathleen had emerged from her onstage shyness to comment on the multiple wins. I feel really great. I was really nervous up there, obviously, as you can tell. Um, but it's really amazing, especially the volunteers loving us. I think that's really special because a lot of volunteers I flyered and said, you should really come see our show. So I'm really glad that they took that and went with it. Ingrid, who arrived to the award show just in time to accept her second award, started out a bit speechless. I feel great. I feel very honored. It's very special. That's all. <laughs> it will no doubt take time to fully process the accomplishment, but I wanted to know how they, as artists in BC today, how do they interpret the recognition for little orange men? Was this validation for countless hours of thankless work? I don't, um, I don't often go seeking for validation, but I know what you mean, um, <laughs> because I was just traveling, um, and I was in Germany, I was seeing some shows there, and... I was marveling at the extremely low ticket prices. I went to see a professional dance piece for a dollar or a euro. And um, I was, you know, contemplating that. And it's like, oh, well, of course, that's the way it's supposed to be. And, oh, why are the arts, um, you know, government-funded and government-subsidized and, and, and endorsed by businesses and, and, and um, funded? Oh, because... It's not because artists poo-poo, we're, we're poor people, we need, we need your money, boo-hoo, I need to create my art, bah-ha-ha. Ha. It's because if they're not publicly funded, it becomes an elite thing and nobody can afford it. And that's why they're funded in Europe, because they understand that. And that's what's so magical about the fringe, is because 100% of the ticket proceeds go directly to the artists. The artists can sometimes, um, you know, make a bit of a living. And there's very little in the way of a middleman between, like you were saying earlier, Kathleen, uh, between the artists and the public. You're out there promoting your show face-to-face with the public, with with your patrons, and getting direct feedback from them afterwards. And... um, it's a real treat to be at the French. Yeah, it's yeah. very universal and kind of um, democratic, maybe. It's, it's mm-hmm. for everyone. Everyone's involved. Yeah, and you it's get... It's not an elite thing. It's not an elite thing, and you get audiences from a much wider spectrum than you, maybe your regular theater-growing audience because uh, people will take a chance on the French because it's 10 bucks. It's, when you win an award, it's also like, oh my gosh, they understand us. <laughs> There's, it's true, like, you, you know, you do some crazy um, found object puppetry on stage and to have people respond to that and actually feel something about it, um, suddenly you realize that there's something going on in the collective unconscious that makes people understand us. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I was really proud, too, because when we first created the show last year, it was under a different title, um, Gnomeward Bound, and we took it to the Calgary Fringe to, at, the, at its very first stage just to test it out. And we had some nights where we had, you know, 10 audience members, which for a Fringe show isn't bad. <laughs> um, but, you know, like really modest houses and... and um, and it, it's really um, wonderful to then be able to rework and revisit a project and 
we changed quite a deal and then have it have it fly yeah have the work yeah. actually be have the work have have had the work go towards something like have mm. the had the work actually be responded to little orange men if you haven't seen it is a one woman show featuring Ingrid Hansen as Kit a hyperactive 12 year old girl with an enormous imagination a penchant for lapsing into danish and the owner of a remarkable helmet that allows her to download the dreams of audience members. The play creates a sprawling world, features a loosely structured story, and fearlessly incorporates audience interaction. So, where did the ideas come from? The short answer is the mind of Ingrid Hansen. I think this is the most linear and accessible show I've created yet, <laughs> and I'm not joking. And uh, if you saw any of our other shows you made, maybe we would understand. Uh, yeah. Um, but uh, Kathleen and I started working together on this very early in the process, and um, we very first actually created a 10-minute exploration of this character and the dream interpretations um, for a show hosted by Vancouver's indie theater company, It's a Zoo, which are all almost all UVic graduates um, living in Vancouver who created um, a theater collective type performance uh, called Bridge Mix, where it was a parkade, and um, audiences toured through the parkade and shot, saw 10-minute shows by all different theater companies. So we created, um, a t there was a 10-minute version of this this. Little, this 12-year-old girl doing her dream experiments um, at Bridge Mix. And that was our very, very first kind of beep, testing grounds for this. The show involved a lot of food-based puppetry as well, including celery doubling as legs, a viciously stabbed apple, and a bread beard. And then we spent a lot of time sitting in Ingrid's living room playing with vegetables and toys. <laughs> um, figuring out images. So that was kind of where the story... A lot of time playing with your food. Yeah, literally. I think I think the food actually. I was telling someone this today. Um, I think the food actually came out of the fact that we both decided that we would stop eating during rehearsal, um, and that it was very important for us to make sure that we eat. So we started having vegetables surrounding us so that we could eat during rehearsal, and then all of a sudden Ingrid was you know tap dancing with shoes yeah. stuck in celery, <laughs> and and you know so so um, the food actually evolved from the desire to make sure that we were healthy. Fast <laughs> metabolism. <laughs> For Kathleen, as the director, it must have been a tall order to, on the one hand, facilitate Ingrid's raw creativity, but on the other hand, enforce some coherence and structure. How was it working with Ingrid? Um, it was actually very easy. I've worked with a lot of performers, and I've noticed over time that it is very important to have a performer who um, has no fear. <laughs> And so to, ha to work with Ingrid and with a person um, who just absolutely has no fear with whatever she does. And you can say, I'd really love it if we did this and she'll go and learn it. <laughs> I, have um, <laughs> I have fear. <laughs> but, it's, but it's a fear that is, um, it's something that, um, it's some, like, okay, a desire to overcome fear. Um, and so, and so it's just been so amazing because every single part of the process I've, I've not had to work at getting a performer to get over something. It's always been about um, what, what the heck can we do, <laughs> you know? Um, every single step of the process has been so amazing because it's always been about how far can we push it. And Ingrid had equal praise for her director been amazing. Kathleen has been uh, one of the most understanding and I, I, I was thinking about it one night and I this show would have never been anything like this 
if I'd been working with any other director who I know who I can think of because there's no way I would have told them the strange ideas that I have told Kathleen. <laughs> and she has gone, yes, let's try it. A big part of the rehearsal process was a large support system of friends and peers to watch, evaluate and comment on their evolving work. Um, one of the great things about us working together is we, we, we smash and bash and we create all of these strange um, things, and then we have a really fabulous support network in Victoria uh, of theatre artists and regular people, um, which is, we find it very important to get the feedback from both. <laughs> um, but from the Belfry and from Theatre Scam and from Tim Gosley and Merlin Sun and from Rob Hunter and, and Theatre in Kanu and, and, and then all of the friends and everyone at Discovery Coffee and just... Um, Lots and lots of uh, testing in front of people is very useful as well. So we've had some show and tells, which so we're very. Recommend helpful. that to any any artist is show it to a lot of people, get a lot of feedback. Yeah, heck yeah, 